Hello and welcome back to another episode of Looking Forward. It's an historic Wednesday today because it is zero, zero cases of community transmission of COVID-19. Only two cases have recorded at all, and that was because two people came in from overseas. What does this mean? We had tens of thousands of people marching last week when we're supposed to have a lockdown. So what is the state of our pandemic and our lockdown at the moment? That, of course, we'll be talking about. Plus, in the US, we've had big protests continuing, and now it seems they might actually have a very direct public policy point. Defund the police appears to be the watchword for this week, and there might even be something to it. Um, but it could could be very good, could be very bad. So we'll talk about that as well. And then uh, we'll also look at an imbroglio at the New York Times where the opinion editor got fired because he had the temerity to actually run an opinion piece that the staff disagreed with. So has campus culture overtaken newspapers in America and indeed in Australia? We'll be looking at that and also expect our usual books and culture segment where we'll be talking about uh, a great book on the interwar period by Ian Kershaw. Um, Chris Berg will be talking about Space Force with Steve Carell. For, that's a trigger warning for anyone who doesn't like Steve Carell. And, um, and I'll be talking about uh, this book called The Narrow Corridor, State Societies and the Fate of Liberty with Darren Asimoglu and James A. Robinson as authors all that and more to help me do that is my co-host from rmit university and adjunct fellow at the ipa dr chris berg g'day cross uh, cross g'day uh, scott he crosses to chris g'day, berg. g'day scott <laughs> we're off to a great start and um great to have you at a desk in the flesh i'm looking for yeah yeah face to face uh social uh, responsibly distance responsibly, of course, yeah. but yeah. um of course yeah. um director of policy at the ipa and uh, I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review. I'm always the one that I forget to introduce. I'm the guy with the beard. Very easy. Um, so, first topic, as I say, um, we're supposed to be in lockdown, but that didn't stop tens of thousands of people marching, Chris. No, it didn't. So, 20,000 people marched in Sydney over the weekend. Um, the Stop All Black Deaths in Custody rally, obviously inspired um, by the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States. Uh, 10,000 people marched in Melbourne. Um, the uh, the Sydney March was an authorised public assembly um, after uh, some very last-minute court battles. The Court of Appeal um, declared that that was an um, authorised public protest. In Melbourne, um, it was not, but the organisers will be fined for breaching the directions of the Chief Health Officer, not the um, not all of the uh, protesters themselves and Daniel Andrews had uh, the Premier of Victoria had recommended and suggested that people shouldn't go out. Um, the question though for you Gideon, so these are huge numbers. These are um, uh, really big numbers certainly for protests in Australia. Is the pandemic over then? Uh, are we all done? Is the virus gone? What's what's happening? Well, Chris, I always believe in listening to the experts, I'll defer on to the, to the medical <laughs> experts on whether the pandemic is over, um, you know, arguably we're starting to see that might not have been as scary as it had first or the modelling told us that it was, but that is a very, very different discussion. But uh, in a medical sense, who knows? In a 
political sense, in a cultural sense? Well, yes. I mean, people are now marching in the street. They've, I'm sure there is some overlap between the social distance warriors who have been saying, stay home, wash your hands, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I mean, wash your hands is a pretty reasonable thing to say, I guess. Um, and the social justice warriors who said, no, uh, we have to be out, we have to be saving lives and therefore we can gather in, in large spaces. In a regulatory sense, though, of course the pandemic is still going on. We're still under lockdown. These undemocratic... I'm not going to use the D word because it's overused, but heavy-handed, uh, cruel measures are still in place. Um, but the interesting thing is you've seen the political shift. I mean, it, it's interesting to watch Daniel Andrews. He's always somebody who is as cunning as the proverbial in terms of being a political operator, but he's no longer doing his daily dictator, dictatorial press conferences outside um, you know, in the, in the control room against that purple banner saying stay at home with all the medical experts. He's back out in his high vis inspecting various infrastructure projects like some sort of tin pock dictator inspecting production quotas at a factory or something. He's trying to move away from this issue because he, he knows he's on a loser now, but he's stuck with this grotesque regulatory apparatus he's created and he has to still... And here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. He's, you know, he was asked, he didn't bring it up, obviously, didn't volunteer at the press conference yesterday, but he said, look, I know everybody's frustrated, I'm frustrated, but just think, going to that dinner party or visiting that mate might result in an outbreak. How he can say that with a straight <laughs> face now, uh, it, it, I almost admire how shameless this great villain is. Well, sometimes, I mean, that's a great data point, Gideon, because um, uh, politicians are amazing. That you know, the the weather vanes, their ability to adapt. Mm. And and the, uh, what was the famous uh, quote from? Uh, I think it was Robespierre. He says, "There go the mob. I'm, I must uh, I must lead them as he as he runs to catch up." I'm their leader. I must follow them. Yeah. Yeah, and. Um, uh, there's no doubt that people are voting with their feet, not just mm. in terms of these protests. I saw um, GPT Property Trust was briefing its um, its long-suffering investors who are, of course, concerned about um, uh, what's happening uh, to retail. Mm. And, and they're saying, well, look, it's, it's picking up, actually. 90% uh, of our stores are open and foot traffic in the shopping centres uh, that are controlled by GPT are running at 85% of pre-pandemic levels. Of course they are. There's Pe nothing else to do. People are out there... Tra <laughs> no, seriously. Traffic is picking up. I mean, I know you, you walk to work, but you wouldn't even notice. No, I, I, no I, know the, I know the traffic uh, now. It's actually striking. I'm I, um, driving you know, down Kingsway... Uh, to my other half's house, you know, the, in the middle of the pandemic, it was like a ghost town. Now it's just it's basically as it was but, but prior the, to the pandemic. But there's two points to make here, right? So, so Scott, you opened the show with the correct observation that on Tuesday we had zero local transmissions. Okay, so there's a that, that's that's fascinating. We've been talking about um, the pandemic since January. Um, we have substantially beat the pandemic in Australia if not completely beat the pandemic in Australia, um, and it's time to roll back those lockdowns. But there is an incredible hypocrisy, which I think is probably worth dwelling on for just a moment, that simultaneously we're being told that there's nothing more virtuous than going out mm. and supporting, um, uh, uh, you know, stop all black deaths in country, uh, in custody, which is a, which is a, uh, you know, it's a good message. I've never and met anyone in favour of it. No, and, and it's a serious thing. And as we discussed last week, the, the Black Lives Matter um, and the police abuse, these are serious problems and they are mm. worthy of protests. But we can't be simultaneously told not to go to um, uh, to dinner parties at the same time. I, th I think it's a bit more nuanced than that because I, you, you said nothing's more worthy than going out. I mean, that's the view of, of 
you know, big Instagram world uh, and, you know, hashtagery and all sorts of other silly things. But really the focus should be on, on regulators, on, on policymakers, on people who have inflicted this extremely cruel and probably unnecessary lockdown on us all. Daniel Andrews didn't say it's the, it's, it's the most worthy thing you could do, but he did say, well, it's a worthy cause and, look, I wouldn't go and I'm disappointed it happened. That is very different language from this is not the time to get on the beers, this is not the time to... Uh, visit your whole, girlfriend. To visit, well, correct. That, that, which was, which was banned for about for, 24 hours. Yep. Yeah, correct. But you, not time, or not boyfriend, time to, as the not, case may Not be. the time to celebrate Anzac Day. Look, I, I'm, I'm with you. I happen to think that the death of George Floyd was one of the most shocking things to happen in the United States since the murder of Emmett Till. I happen to think that Indigenous incarceration is too high and more to the point the disadvantage that is causing it is, is a desperately needed topic of conversation in this country. And I also happen to think that, it, that given, ironically, what we've seen with the police are capable of doing during this lockdown, it is the time to talk about police overreach and police brutality. Maybe, just maybe, we should talk about things like the fact that in New South Wales, the police are still strip-searching 12-year-olds at music festivals. But all that said, we were supposed to be in this... The, 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 protests should have been... You know, even I will say math ga- mass gatherings should have been banned. So, oh, that, that was... Thank you for that uh, that opening because this is my point. This is the absurdity that they've taken the uh, the lockdown to, as uh, we've always been in the situation of um, uh, ridiculous impositions on minor social interactions, which uh, the literature indicates is is almost infinitesimal risk in terms of uh, transmitting COVID nineteen. So so again, um, we talked about the fishing ban, mm. um, all these petty restrictions. So in uh, the beaches, um, people are inherently socially distanced. Yeah, yeah. So that's the that's golf courses. The golf courses. All, all <laughs> what of do these. they think you play golf in a pack of fifty or something? And, and this like is footy, or? and and this is how I wouldn't know. You lose faith in the legitimacy <laughs> of things, and just as we now uh, and 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 of course in in uh, hate to keep quoting Victoria, but it is the extreme case. They're at it again. They closed uh, the Mornington Pier the other day because too many people were fishing, looking outwards from the pier towards the water where they were hoping the fish would appear. And um, this is how people lose faith. And they, they lose faith because of the hypocrisy of, of waving through to various degrees the marches and not condemning them, not using that language. And what gets lost is we are not saying lift all, you know, go to absolute laissez-faire immediately. Gideon, your video has always been about a stage reduction, mm. um, careful reduction, maintaining social distancing. And and in this case, like I, I, I personally do still have problems with um, mass high-intensity gatherings, mm. um, uh, sport, much as I want to get people back into sporting stadiums. Um, it, is, it is the shouting, it's the emotion... Uh, that's when the spit literally starts to fly. The, so, the so policy, so the policy from here. I think no, if, no, if you can protest, the policy all, from no, here. It's a personal view. Bars the, and dancing. The correct, the correct policy from here, as I see it, um, is given that we have near zero transmission, you open up the economy. You fully open up the economy, yeah. with the exception of 100 plus person gatherings, because we know that yes. the way these things transfer, transmit, and um, spread, that the hyper Dangerous events are the are the business conferences are mm. the 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 groups at the times when large numbers of people are together and travel and um, spread. But what we can't forget is we have done incredibly well at building up capacity, building up the capacity to I mean, do contact stop. tracing, yeah. building up the capacity. Our, our hospital system has has wards and wards mm. of ICUs ready, still ready yeah. for the COVID cases that haven't come. It's time to live 
with that level of risk. Well, you just stole the, the you gazumped me because I, I was going to say, look, we should go back to first principles and talk about what, what do we even, and this is why where the governments and the national cabinet and all the, you know, the, the responses sort of fallen off a bit. Um, in, initially, the deal was clear. Look, we just need to let the hospital system start. We only have a few thousand ventilators in the country or whatever it is. Once we get those online, then the hospital systems can, can hope. Stay home, save lives, protect the hospital system. By all accounts, that has now happened. Uh, they shifted the goalposts. Well, they've shifted the goalposts, but but this is why people are losing faith in this. We we, we don't know what we're fighting for anymore. And, and so what you got? To, it's a question of what hill do you die on? Uh, and at the moment, they just want to die on every single hill. So we <laughs> we are we read in the you know, so they're going to why they, not have both? They're going to die on the hill of fishing, or in Queensland, um, uh, Anastasia Palaszczuk wants to die on the hill of not letting people fly to Port Douglas, yeah. even though there hasn't been. Uh, a case north of Townsville, I think, ever. Um, I'll stand corrected, but there's certainly uh, infinitesimally small rates of transmission in the north anyway. And now that Victoria has achieved zero community transmission, for how much longer can that absurdity remain? So the, it's the lack of agility. And now, and now they're even saying that at the National Cabinet meeting, the, um, uh, the Health Principles Committee might, re might say, well, because of the tens of thousands of people who are marching, we better just wait a few more weeks to see what happens as a result of that before we start lifting the restrictions. This is, this is madness. Yeah, this, this is extreme risk aversion on behalf of the government, which is not, a, um, which is not doing them any favour and not doing us any favour. It is understandable that you would look at what has happened over the weekend and be concerned, but you also simultaneously have to have some faith in the work that you have done to build up a healthcare system mm. and a contact tracing system that can deal with outbreaks. Because if we shut down our economy anytime there is an outbreak, we are never, never going to open our borders no. to the rest of the world. We are never going to be able to get back to the economy we had in 2019. But, but more to the point, who will comply with these restrictions now, especially if they extend them? Yeah. Especially if they extend them. Uh, no, people will not accept, oh, look, because, of, because we've let... 10,000 odd people march in the streets uh, and, and yell into megaphones. Uh, we're sorry, we just have to keep this, we have, you have to keep your, shot go, your shop going earlier. You know, every, every time a Premier nauseatingly has gotten in, into the control room and did their press conference, they've always started by saying, look, we just want to thank everybody, everybody's doing a wonderful job. We didn't have a choice in it. Uh, and I mean that quite literally because the damn parliaments were suspended and these were made up by executive fiat. Um, but more to the point, how are you going to say to people, look, everybody's done a really good job just because of, you know, 10,000 ferals we can't control. Uh, we just have, no, people, there, there will literally be riots in the street and I might be one of them. Uh, one of the things I, I, I may be one of them. I will link to an article in show notes, um, which uh, Chris, you actually shared like six weeks ago. It's from May tenth, uh, the New New York Times, which we'll be talking about in a minute. The article is called "How Pandemics End: An Infectious Outbreak Can Conclude in More Ways Than One." Historians say, but for whom does it end, and who gets to decide? It was. A very prescient article, I think, um, because we have reached that point now. What it, the point of the article being that it's not a medical thing to say the pandemic's over. We've reached such and such a benchmark. It's when societies eventually get sick of it. Yeah, it's when citizens and consumers adjust to the risk, and so they may make personal adjustments, mm. or they might just decide that you know the risk of getting the disease is um, not as great as the risk of not being able to go out or go to 
go to work and so forth. And I think in Australia, we're actually a couple of weeks well past that point. Yep. Um, uh, the, the, you know, anecdotally, um, as well as um, empirically, the foot traffic has increased. You can see people much more calm. They're not as concerned when you're walking down the street. Um, fewer people are sort of moving away from each other. It, it, it's quite clear that we're well into that stage. So to one sense, it doesn't really matter what the government does as long as they're not over-fining or over-prosecuting people. For the most part, the economy is just going to start spinning up again. Now, as we've talked many times on this podcast, that doesn't mean we get back to the to the riches of 2019. I think there's a massive amount of economic work and reform that has to go through. But I think getting people back into work, getting people comfortable going to restaurants, that's just a time thing. It's not a regulatory thing. Absolutely. And um, so closer, uh, coming back to the US, which was the original uh, source of uh, the global push, which has seen the protests here in Australia, uh, a week ago we had protests which were uh, uh, describing, I, I guess, expressing uh, frustration, anger and all sorts of emotions, not just about the death of George Floyd, but um, those who see institutional racism in America, maybe those who don't but just wanted to see something done. Um, but now we seem to be coalescing, Chris, around, or those protests seem to be coalescing around something more specific. And I thank them for it because once you actually get to specific policy proposals, then policy wonks have actually got something to say about it. Because yeah. when it was racism, like... How do you end racism? Systemic yeah. racism. Yeah, good, good that's question. right. So <laughs> um, I think it, it, it is interesting, but we had a really good conversation with Dr. Aaron Lane last week about um, police reform um, uh, in, in, in the context of the protests. But now they've coalesced around this, this phrase, defund the police. Now, as far as I can tell, defund the police means both everything and nothing. Yeah. Um, there is, in the United States particularly, a very marginal radical view of about genuine... Police, police abolitionism. So, um, uh, uh, the idea that you can't, you, 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 you need to shut down the police and replace it not with other police, but with I'm going to quote an author called Alex Vitali, who's written a book called The End of Policing. Um, replace it with democratic public non-police solutions. Now, that is a radical. That is a radical view. Um, but for most part, this defund the police idea seems to be a synonym for radical reform of police, individual police units mm. or reinvention of police. Um, it's worth pointing out that the presidential candidate, Joe Biden, has um, very clearly rejected the defund the police argument. But there is a um, bipartisan view now. Um, in fact, some people that we're going to talk about later also share this view on the conservative side that there is some radical reform necessary at least in the united states about how these police units function or, or, in, or some police units some, some police units some police uh, units. i mean it's so, a massive country with with tremendous yeah. variety in its in no that, and, that, and that's a really good point um uh because there are some states and there's some cities where police work very very well and um really strong community policing but there are obviously places where that is not the case gideon um how do you think about i mean so would you defund the police first but but okay. also how do you how do you think about the the police reform question in the US? Um, take take a big glass. <coughs> of yeah, I've been, the, I've been the, sitting at home vaping too much with too much time <laughs> on my hands. Um, uh, miraculous technology should absolutely be legalized now. Um, yeah, in, in so far as the United States, look as I said, I, I was I was shocked at what happened to um, 
to George Floyd, I think there is a racial element to it. And we know there is a racial element to it because even mini Mike Bloomberg admitted in a 2015 sort of unguarded moment that when he was mayor, he sent the police into minority neighbourhoods because that was that was where the crime is. Now, I don't doubt that there is a lot of crime happening in, in um, minority neighbourhoods. But when you go after, you know, when you have black weed dealers, for example, being rounded up in, in black neighbourhoods and there is not a corresponding... Uh, police action for white weed dealers because there aren't any cops there, then that, that to me seems like a disproportionate, um, uh, you know, pre police presence and that's why there's such a high black, high black incarceration rate among several other reasons. But to go back to the concept of defunding the police, look, this is the, it's an easy thing to balk at and say, oh, to fund the police, I just want no police, you know, anarchists and everything else. But the more I think about look, we pay through the nose for police in Victoria, for example, and I don't think we get the best value for our money. I think they do a good job on a good day, but think about it this way. How many people do you know who've been assaulted or robbed or had a serious crime against their personal property and the police come, they take a report, file it away, and nothing ever happens? How many people do you know who got who went four kilometres over the speed limit on the Eastern Freeway and got the book thrown at them? There are There is a, 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 a problem with the emphasis of what police do. In the UK, police have non-crime hate incidents at a time when there are cells grooming young girls for, you know, all sorts of reasons which I won't go into. Uh, we have 12-year-olds in New South Wales being asked to squat and cough by police officers at music festivals and strip search. Are we really comfortable with the police going after 12-year-olds at music festivals when we have violent criminals marching around our cities and crime is on the way but up? Beginning, so uh, uh, I, I take all that and that's the, those are points well but, made. But what do, what do you do? Well, this is, the, this is the difference though. I think defund the police, it's sort of a cart before the horse thing. I think we need to work out what we want the police to do and what the, poli what the function of police is in a free society uh, is it to go after mostly law-abiding citizens who've committed the occasional infraction or is it to go after violent offenders? But whatever we decide the police want to do, we cut the cloth accordingly. Uh, the police funding should follow the function of the police. It not should be, well, let's just defund them and work out the rest later. I think there's two two things going on here and, and, and one of them could work and one of them won't work. Um, the first, uh, the, I'll tell you first the thing that won't work, which is... Um, uh, the Manhattan Institute's done tremendous work in, in America, um, uh, based in New York, uh, through James Wilson and others, you know, came up with the uh, broken windows model of um, uh, policing, essentially. And uh, it's not really about uh, the legislation around law, it's how it's actually policed. And uh, study after study that they've done, comparative across the US, shows that when there's these waves of reaction against the police and uh, the politicians put the pressure on to... Um, reduce the presence on the streets, reduce the level of um, uh, arrests and uh, petty harassment, um, crime rates go up, mm. homicides go up. And, and say, to the extent that it's uh, an issue with minorities, they, they especially go up in minority neighbourhoods uh, because, uh, you know, most um, most more black people are shot by other black people in America than by white people and, and so on and so forth. So that, that could be actually disastrous. I mean, this is almost predictive that you would see some of that occurring as a result of this. The politicians will not back the police up as, to try and maintain a police presence on the streets. The alternative, which um, is attracting some attention, is when they say defund the police, what they mean is essentially disestablish the existing mm. police force that you have. So this was done in Camden, New Jersey, uh, it was a police force that had all uh, had a terrible reputation 
um, for um, uh, racial incidents and actually never never actually did anything. Mm. Um, uh, they, you know, they wouldn't work other than nine to five. Uh, no. They wouldn't actually attend for property crimes, as you say. Everything was worked to rule. They had this collective bargaining agreement about when they wouldn't wouldn't work and, and if anyone complained about the police, the collective bargaining agreement kicked in and, and stopped them actually being... <laughs> Uh, prosecuted like or in the state of Victoria. Well, it does. I mean, we have police unions here. Police unions are one of the, the forces behind this. So in Camden, New Jersey, they actually abolished it. They started again. Greenfield's uh, collective bargaining agreement, uh, much more reverted to a community policing model, and they've seen great results uh, come out of that. If that was the sensible core of some of the proposals, that would, that's got some potential. And this is the frustrating thing because we know what a good police force actually looks like. Mm. We've, we've got decades of evidence about the effectiveness of community-focused policing. You want people on a street to um, ha have their interactions with the police not be immediately hostile. And mm. this is obviously what a lot of black Americans are, are very concerned about, that mm. they grow up only experiencing hostile relationships. The economist Alex Tabarrok actually had a really um, uh, interesting piece it, on his blog, Marginal Revolution. He's a GM, uh, George Mason University economist, um, uh, that makes a really obvious point. Why do we ask the police to do so much? Why do we mm. need the police to do, for instance, traffic stops? traffic stops which are um, tend to be non-threatening from the perspective of the uh, police but if you're a if you're being stopped by the police they can be seen as highly threatening many of the um, most uh, horrific incidences um, of uh, police and um, black Americans we've seen at during traffic stops and so forth they end up being very hostile when it's just being pulled over for broken tail lights yeah. or um, or speeding basically regulatory or, or, offenses or a forged check forged check or forged, forged check or something or something uh, basically that you would never see the potential for a violent encounter and yet they turn violent mm. because the police are trained for the worst case scenario and they have built up in some places a, a, a culture of believing that any situation can turn into the worst case scenario. And I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to say it. There are bad people on police forces, just like there are bad people on every in every walk of life. I'm not saying police are all bad. In fact, I think most are probably good. But we, but we don't have limits on government power for good actors we need to you know we, we need to have a stronger you know because at the end of the day the police do work for us they do they work for law-abiding citizens uh we need to be clear about what police can and can't do yeah, and restrain need, the bad ones well, well, there's there's something that's quite interesting coming out of the progressive left in the u.s at the moment that are starting to realize that they have too many laws mm. they actually have too many regulatory restrictions yep. on what people can do um, uh, one of the most famous incidents in recent years was um, uh, a, a black American who was killed in the process of enforcing restrictions on the sale of cigarettes, mm. individual packets of cigarettes or individual cigarettes out of a packet, I should say. Um, we, we just we don't want no. to be enforcing so many um, petty restrictions at the force of a gun. Now, to, mm. I mean, it's great that the progressive left in the US is picking this up, but this has always been the libertarian argument mm. that any law, any regulation is ultimately, at, with the threat of force, with the threat of violence and, and, and enforced by someone who has a gun, we want fewer rules. Mm. Yeah, I would, I would say too, though, that um, uh, this is one of the many issues where every day you wake up grateful that you live in Australia 
much as I love America and its freewheeling attitude, um, we should bring a certain amount of humility to this debate because it, it is a very different country. It, yeah. is, it is a strange and deeply violent country. Um, it, it, its foundations were very different to ours. Yeah. And, um, you know, the average police officer for the uh, approaching the average incident, I think, faces an entirely different risk scenario uh, than what you might in a, in a country like Australia. And... Um, and our police force, police forces across the country, for for all their faults, um, have not um, approached anything like so. You know the militarisation of the um, the American uh, system. I mean, I, I just I still hew to that the original model of community policing that was established by Sir Robert Peel, uh, I think 1830s, um, uh, when he created the Bobbies in London based on his experience in Ireland, it's it's still a good model. And, um, you, know, it, you know, you always get worried when uh, the police forces order an armoured personnel vehicle and they say, we'll only ever use it for the most extreme riots. And mm. next thing you know, <laughs> next thing you know, there it is out on the streets yeah. when, when somebody's protesting against a COVID-19 uh, lockdown. It's, it's a really interesting point. And um, if you recall uh, Bowling for Columbine, the old Michael Moore documentary about gun violence in the US, um, uh, it's actually a remarkably honest documentary because it goes through uh, um, gun availability and so forth. So it goes through the standard arguments mm. for gun control in the United States, particularly after the Columbine um, uh, high school massacre. But then it ends with this slightly discordant note because he goes to Canada. Exactly, yeah. And he looks around and he sees there's the same amount of gun availability or the yeah. same you can get you can get guns just as easily, but but they don't lock their doors. Yeah. And he walks into someone's house and, oh, what are you doing in my house? Well, you didn't lock your door. Yeah. Um, and so there is this um, uh, cultural difference, which is which is right. And, and, and Scott, you, that's absolutely right. And it's sort of hard to view this from Australia where we do have a different relationship. So, so what you're saying, Berg, the, is guns don't kill people, people with guns kill people. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, uh, 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 yes, I think, but but you can be more nuanced or subtle about that and point out that there is... I'm being flippant as just, usual. Just <laughs> there, there are some issues. And, we, you know, we do, Scott, we do have issues in, in, in Australia and the... Um, the indigenous incarceration rate and indigenous interaction with the police is a real problem and, and, and we should think about that deeply. But for the most part, in most places of Australia, we just don't have that same relationship. Indeed. And, and just as an aside, it wasn't what we were going to talk about today, but if we do have a problem with an indigenous incarceration rate, but we actually the figures don't support the notion that Aboriginal deaths in custody appear at, uh, occur at any different rate to... Um, non-indigenous uh, deaths in custody, and they occur for all, all kinds of reasons. And this is a result of good good policy over a period of, of time. I'm not suggesting we be complacent about it, but if people are going to take up issues, um, as they're right to do, it should be based on some kind of evidence. We should get Andrew Bushnell in to talk about that. Indeed, yes. So, And, and there are many causes of um, Aboriginal incarceration rates. So... Once we've solved that problem, <laughs> we could uh, probably uh, rest on our laurels can for I the do next a, 40 years. Can I do a segue? Please. Speaking of before we had the police force, they sent in the troops. There, this gets us to a New York Times column <laughs> written by Senator Tom Cotton called Send in the Troops that has um, started a huge kerfuffle really about um, uh, about uh, intellectual culture in the United States. Mm. Um, so the story is this. Um, the New York Times published this piece by Senator Tom Cotton um, called Send in the Troops calling for an overwhelming show of force to disperse detain and ultimately deter 
lawbreakers um, rather than using the police. He wanted um, the uh, 86th Airborne or something or 82nd Airborne, <laughs> something along those lines to sort that out. This um, piece was published in the New York Times and started a massive storm of protest within the New York Times itself, mm. making the argument, as far as we can tell, that to publish this was a direct threat to um, the black American staff who worked for the New York Times and this was wildly irresponsible. One tweet from one New York Times staff member, Ida Bay Wells, said, I am deeply ashamed that we ran this. Um, the piece was a eventually there's a huge, if you look it up now, and it's worth having a look to see what the storm is all about, but the piece now has this huge um, caveat right up the front explaining why they published it and all that sort of thing. Um, and the editor, the editorial page director who published it, fellow named James Bennett has um, has has resigned with immediate effect, mm. or we should say he's been resigned as it is. The New York Times now says the tone of the essay in places is needlessly harsh and falls short of the thoughtful approach that advances debate. Um, uh, anyway, so so um, uh, the um, so anyway, I'll, I'll 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 ask you this as a question, Gideon. Um, what are we supposed to think about the paper of record deciding that a piece by a sitting senator mm. is outside the realm of legitimate debate? or legi it, it is actively harmful. Well, are, we really, are we really that surprised? I mean, uh, I'm... I'm I'd much rather the New York Times does it than, for example, the ABC, which has basically similar editorial guidelines. They wouldn't put, uh, say, Fraser Ranning on air. Not that I think Fraser Ranning has anything particularly interesting or useful to say, but um, there is, if you look at the ABC editorial guidelines, there is this bizarre idea of balance and that, yes, we need to understand all views, but that doesn't mean that views that are not helpful to blah, blah, blah should get undue airtime by undue they mean any now what what is the difference it's a distinction without a difference are we surprised i think the the, the best um contribution was made by bari weiss who had that um thread in which she said this is why i've been interested in she's a she's a writer at the new york times correct, correct. and she wrote and <laughs> for, she, for the moment and, and, and i think she coined the the term intellectual dark web as well yeah, yeah um so. so she's got an interest in in the cross currents of this and she wrote look People think in looking at campus censorship, I've been pursuing a sideshow. No, it's extremely relevant because the same mentality that is giving us cancel culture on campus will eventually escape and take over our, our major intellectual institutions. She said, what I was thinking, though, it would take a matter of years, not a matter of weeks. But here we are. Uh, yeah, and um, uh, it was interesting. Some of the, some of the pushback um, against that tweet from her colleagues at the New York Times was, oh, no, no, it wasn't just the young people who rose up. Um, it was people of all ages, so I'm not, I'm not sure what's worse. Yeah. It's, it's, so she might actually be a little bit wrong to to attribute the it to cancel culture and a and a soft headedness and a, and a and a fear of being triggered and all those sort of things that you know Jonathan Haidt talked about in the coddling of the American mind. It could actually just be old fashioned leftism, and um, and as you say, it's a it's a private enterprise. You know if that's what they want to do. But they do still have this conceit and, and, and uh, the, the uh, publishing tradition in Australia is the same, that they're a journal of record. Yeah. The New York Times says it's the, the journal of record for America yeah. and, and you can't have that conceit and then just say, but we're only going to service one viewpoint. And apart from anything else, it makes for dreadfully dull newspapers. I remember the, the, the age once upon a time 
uh, in Melbourne and, and even more so the Sydney Morning Herald, even even when Fairfax had, was definitely of the left, you know, I'm going back to say 20, 30 years, they used to run conservative columnists and they'd say to the editor, what are you doing that for? And they'd say, oh, because um, the teachers read it in the staff rooms and they read it out loud to each other and get really fired up. Yeah. So, so I, I, I... It I actually got, sells newspapers. I it makes it interesting. I've got some personal experience with this, just the old left and the new left in charge of our publications and without naming any names, um, the, the there was a time... So I, I wrote a column for the Sunday Age for um, Yeah, I remember you, you had some years. good stuff. I, I, I quoted one of your columns in a, a uni essay I wrote. Nice, nice, nice. Which, is, which was surprising. That's the usually, standards of evidence that I expect. That's how you get a job Because I usually write left-wing essays to try to game the system, but uh, one day I was you know feeling a bit adventurous and wrote... Um, so, so I wrote this column for a long time um, and the um, and the, the editors obviously were very um, uh, keen to have me, but um, there was a lot of pushback from within the newspaper itself, particularly when I'd write something particularly controversial or that that went against some nostrum. Um, uh, but but my relationship with editors in this space has always been that old left style editor, where they're just as interested in seeing the argument mm. made as well as it can be, yeah. So that the reader has a capacity to um, to, to weigh up. Their evidence, and it's you know, it's a nice traditional free speech thing. It's the John Stuart Mill. We our our, our ideas are stronger if they're tested yeah. against the better ideas of the other side. But that changed, not at the Sunday Age particularly, but that changed within the Australian media sphere. I think about ten years ago, when you started to get all these new publications that would quietly but clearly make it known that they weren't going to publish any of those types. Mm. They, they weren't going to publish any of the IPA types in their pages. That was that. No, no, we're not going to we're not going to give space to the alternative. Opinions. Well, we might we might find some. We don't want to platform them because you know they we know what they think. We, and they you know the the list of their pro free speech and their pro free markets and all that sort of thing. Um, so that that was a really clear change. Mm. And you can think through the history of Australian um, uh, public intellectual life and realize that 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 was really sharp. There was a time. When um, uh, you know Jared Henderson was in the pages of Fairfax, yeah. not in the pages of the Australian, um, uh, th- there was a time when John Spooner used to do the cartoons for the Age, when, and Andrew when these... Bolt used to be on Insiders. I'm old enough to remember that. <laughs> there was a time when these um, these venues, these publishers, thought they were the paper of record yeah. or the or the place that you went. Mm to see the best of all sides. They might have had a editorial bent. There might have been 10 left-wing columnists and two right-wing columnists, but at least there was a enthusiasm for the concept of debate. I think we're well past that. We we don't like debate, or at least on the left, we don't want to see alternative I, I think I think it's a bit more complicated. Though. I think in these people's minds they really – Nothing has changed. I think they still think they're the paper of record. I, so, I still think they think they're having debates. I think the difference is now that we are we have become so obsessed with no platforming and, and, and related phenomena that they really do think that the Tom Cottons of the world are beyond the realm of acceptability because they literally think that words printed in a newspaper put people in danger, which is, you know, that, that's their view and everything else. But I, I really do not... The thing is, when you when you don't... When you don't listen to the views of the other side. They don't, understand, they don't understand what the IPA is about, for instance, people who criticise us and refuse to publish us. They don't know what we do. They don't know how we you know, communicate and they don't, they don't particularly know what our ideas are. Um, but for a, the difference is this. Um, 
you know, on, on Sky News, for instance, you get clear and present opinion, self-evident, self-confessed, honest opinion. On the ABC, you get the national broadcaster holding it out to be the guardian of truth that is obviously running a skewed agenda. We can debate on what that looks like, but it's obviously biased. Um, I would much rather the honest opinion than people pretending to report facts who are obviously mm. you know, giving a, a, a skewed view of a story. And more to the point, so would most other people. And if people are wondering why when Donald Trump says the media are the enemy of the people, his supporters enthusiastically cheer and clap and holler, that is why? I, I, I'm going to contradict myself and give a contrary opinion um, because I think it is important that isn't the idea of a journal of record, the journal that determines the shape of a national debate, mm. a very anachronistic 20th century idea that there's just the one place where the debate happens mm. and in fact what we've got is such a plurality not just of views but of publications that the New York Times and and a lot of other um, organizations should just drop the conceit mm. that they are mm. the place that determines that that where the space is yeah. of public discourse and and instead you've got um, uh, left-wing and right-wing papers you've got conservative and libertarian, um, uh, uh, magazines. You've got all these different spaces for different views. Mm. And in that sense, if the New York Times just said, okay, well, you know, we're, we're not conservative. Yeah. We're, we're not here to advance mm. that agenda. We're here to advance the agenda I, I of progressive it, left. No, mm. it's, it's, it's interesting now that you've contradicted yourself. Um, it, it, it would be a more honest approach. I do think, though, society would have lost something. I mean, if you do actually believe that uh, through debate uh, we encounter our fellow citizens, we actually encounter... Uh, opposite ideas, even if it's only so that we can be suitably outraged and get fired up and talk to our friends about this ridiculous thing that we just read in um, in our newspaper. It 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 um, we would have lost something, I think. I, I'd like I'd like to see them lose the conceit about being the journal of record, but I I still think there's something to be said for almost a, a duty to um, represent um, the other side uh, reasonably honestly. Uh, actually, a little shout out for for the Guardian. Um, uh, which Guardian Australia, which would, uh, which has been known to perhaps not run opinion pieces by figures on the other side of the fence, but you can, uh, they will actually faithfully report what you've actually said in a story, <laughs> even if it's to pour scorn on it. That at least is something. But look, I, I, I take a different view because maybe it's a generational thing, but I couldn't care less what the New York Times prints. And I agree with Chris, actually, we, a lot of this is being driven by the fragmentation of the media market. If I want right-wing opinion, I don't have to go out and buy you know, the Age or even the Australian or anything else. I can just... I, I, I either uh, find a sort of niche site that caters to my specific views if I'm so inclined, or I can just go on social media and curate my own feed. But you know what? Even the, 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 the paradoxically, the New York Times types don't even agree on that. It wasn't so long ago that Malcolm Turnbull got up and he said, you know, the real problem these days is, you know, back in the good old days, information was curated and people read The Age or they watched the ABC <laughs> and all the right information was curated. For, now they can go and get information from wherever they want. It's anarchy. Gideon, that is the problem here. It wouldn't be a show with you if Malcolm Turnbull didn't, didn't come I, 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 am, I am to Malcolm Turnbull what Hunter S. Thompson was to Richard Nixon. He's just, I, I need him. I need him. I'm going to bring in my uh, leather jacket for the next show just to trigger you. <laughs> I, I'm in, I, I, I will make a serious point, though, and, and this may be New York Times specific or potentially Washington Post as well. But the, a big difference is the reliance that US politics has on those two venues mm. because they have really significant reporting resources. Yeah. 
Um, now, I, I I suspect that the um, role that the Australia, uh, so the role that the Australian and the ABC um, play in the Australian system is quite similar, but you. The, the New York Times will continue to be seen by people on both left and right as a critical venue because they just have a lot more journalists. But less have. so. But less so. They are dealing themselves they, out they of the debate. They are absolutely dealing themselves out of the debate. Yeah. But um, it is remarkable how reliant so much of American politics is on their yeah. journalistic results. Uh, and then Trump, Trump has a point um, about the Washington so, Post. So, Chris, would, which you, is would you say that's an argument for public funding of journalistic resources? <laughs> or, uh, is it Look, I've got, a fun, I've got a fascinating book on this topic. I don't so, know whether you... Uh, I've heard of it. I've heard mixed things. But Trump, Trump's right about the Washington Post. It's now so owned by Jeff, Jeff, Jeff Bezos, you know, the uh, planet's you know, first or second richest man. And, and it doesn't have to make money anymore. So... What, what does it mean for that mission if Jeff Bezos basically gives the Washington Post um, uh, an unlim- you know a blank check essentially um, to push uh, what he thinks is a good agenda? I mean, but that's that's true. I mean, we can go into the history yeah, of, but, but the, history of the media. The bus, that? But that's but that's that's the traditional media, right? So the the traditional media before the mid twentieth century was partisan. Yep. Was tend to be non profit. It would be funded by political parties yep. or donations or what have you. Lots of different r- ways. The idea that there is a journal of record that is perfectly objective, that is the single space in which you get all the truth from. You subscribe yeah. to one of them, and you assume that if if it's it's in the paper. It must be true. That is a weird 1950s. No, I, 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 I also I don't think so. It's fictitious. There's no such. No. I mean, uh, what are we talking about? We uh, even if we accept the New York Times as a journal of record, we have to accept it as some sort of bias. I think any publication holding it out to be holding itself out to be completely objective is lying. True objectivity is impossible. You can try to take different, you know, uh, balance and here can try to be honest. Everything else. Be all, honest yeah. Have journalistic standards and everything else. But ultimately, it is impossible to cover the breadth of the entire issue in any publication. So I think we actually have to accept bias exists enough to say, yeah, look, you know, the age is a left-wing publication. They publish me sometimes and good on them for doing that, but you, you meet people where they are. I think we need to be honest in these sort of discussions. Yeah, I think I think we've lost something. And I, I don't accept that characterisation of, of the history of newspaper publishing oh, okay. in, in, right. in Australia. Um, and Jeff Bezos isn't the only one to operate Because they, had, they had revenue from advertising. It wasn't... Very few proprietors have the, have the opportunity just to sink buckets of money into newspapers um, to pursue um, a personal. Idea. I mean, you know, the Guardian is able to do it because it has a, a trust. Yeah, I was going to bring I was going to bring up the Guardian, but <laughs> but the Guardian isn't poor Which for it. I, I think among the and I've always said among the left of centre publications, the Guardian is one of the best ones. I disagree with them on, on almost everything, but the quality of writing, the coverage, the resources they have, and they're funded yeah, by a private trust. I mean, that's I mean, we're getting really into the media, the, the business model of media and that perennial issue, which we've been over yeah. over and over and over again. But, you know, I'm, I'm a bit old-fashioned in that way. The plurality of voices, the clash of opinions over hey, time, the intellectual free-for-all. I'll tell you what, how about we agree to disagree? Yeah. Conflicting opinions. <laughs> There's a concept. What a, what a wild concept. We have come to that part of the show where we talk about our books and culture picks. And uh, this week, uh, a rare opportunity in the pandemic, we've actually got more books than we do Netflix series. Uh, we, we have slipped a Shall bit. Shall I start I think, with Chris. the Netflix series then? <laughs> <laughs> if you like. Um, yeah, no. I guess we'll talk about the South Park Marathon and watch it over Labor Day if you want. <laughs> so I, I watch Netflix um, uh, because it's actually when you're not training to work and, and you're not traveling as I used to do, um, uh, it's actually not that easy to find time to read, especially mm. when you've got young children. Um, uh, but they're back at school now, so that's a win. 
Um, uh, so I've been watching Space Force, the um, new satirical uh, comedy on Netflix, starring Steve Carell and John Malkovich. Um, uh, a a quote, ripped out of the headlines, satire about the Trump administration. Now, most people who are listening to Looking Forward no doubt hear that description and would think, oh, my God, there's nothing possibly possibly worse. You're describing me at the moment. It actually drops a lot of the, quote, satire of the Trump administration after the first episode, which, in fact, is a shame because the funniest lines are when they're making jokes about tweeting and all that sort of thing. Um, uh, it, it, it's, it's not a bad effort. It's the sort of thing that could have, um, gone through a few more script edits because the, the, um, the good jokes decline over time. A lot of these shows, they tend to make all, they throw all the best material in the pilot or the first episode, they get it funded and then they're like, Oh, Oh God, we've got to write another 10 episodes. Um, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it fills in the hours before death. I'll put it that way. Um, <laughs> a, ring, a, a ringing endorsement. That's, that's always good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Move over Siskel and Ebert. Uh, that's a, I that's your two thumbs up. Yeah. Well, I showed, it, I showed it to my family and um, uh, my parents actually because we spent the weekend with my parents and they, they just didn't like it at all. So, yeah. <laughs> Steve Carell playing Steve Carell. Steve Carell playing Steve Carell. John Malkovich is good value though. Oh, I love, I love John Malkovich yeah. uh, being – John Malkovich being one of my exactly. all-time faves. Well, we, why don't we go from uh, around the table? Um, <laughs> uh, my book is uh, The Narrow Corridor, States, Societies and the Fate of Liberty by Darren Asimoglu and James A. Robinson. Uh, who are famous for being the order of uh, the authors of Why Nations Fail? And I believe that you are nailing the pronunciation of his last name, Asimoglu. Very good. I, I, yesterday I was saying Asimoglu, so um, just I'll tell that story against myself, but I'm <laughs> eventually getting there. Um, Sounds uh, like someone needs cu- cultural sensitivity training. An- anyway, these are, these are brainy bastards. Uh, <laughs> uh, Darren Asimoglu is professor of economics at MIT, uh, winner of the John. Bates Clark Medal, James A. Robinson is an economist and political scientist and he's at the Harris School for Public Policy at the University of Chicago. And this is a, um, a terrific book, um, uh, which I haven't finished yet, but I promise to. And essentially what they're saying is that um, the countries that thrive, the states that survive, um, first of all, you do need state formation. Uh, you can't, you believe in liberty, but you can't be an anarchist. You can't be a libertarian anarchist. You actually do need a state to do things. And it's probably not even a minimal state. It's, it probably goes beyond the basics of um, keeping order um, and allowing a place for contract disputes to be adjudicated. There are, there are certain things. Yeah, the we, army. Do we need the army uh, because you That's have to it. defend your borders? No, they, they go a no, little their bit. Their argument is against that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so it's uh, it's legitimate to talk about things like education and health because they are conducive towards prosperity and ultimately liberty. Um, and sure, that, but I, I put that in the bucket of sorry to cut you off, but I put that in the bucket of the safety net for the most vulnerable. Uh, they're I'm, basically essential. No, services. I think they're going. Right. They, they. I'm. I'm telling you the ground they've staked oh, out. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're tests. Sorry, I'm they're jumping tests. the gun. It's a lock-in um, defence of liberty, mm. uh, a little bit extended um, through uh, a sort of a. a uh, I think it's called civic libertarianism or civic republicanism uh, theory of a guy called Philip Petit yep. uh, or Pettit, uh, which is and it's also about non-dominance. So it's an expansive definition of liberty and freedom. So this is like the end state that states should aspire to. But what it requires, of course, for a state to do all these things is to have trust from the people. And the people rightly don't trust governments. Mm. So the only time people will allow governments to do things is when they feel that they still have some power over the state. And it, and it creates this 
this tension, this dance, if you like, um, and you can see it in the development of states, um, uh, kings versus parliaments, and then uh, you know Magna Carta uh, was the nobles, and then in a democratic era, it's the people themselves. It's being able to go into the streets and protest, if you like. And what happens is um, the the states can fail in two ways. Mm. They can either fail because um, the the state takes that power, but there's no countervailing force, and they just become despotic. And this is China. They just call it out. It's like, e.g., China. Um, or it can fail in the other way, which is um, Congo. You know, it's just the Democratic Republic of the Congo. It's just anarchy. You d- there's no state formation because the people just will not give anyone any trust whatsoever. Mm. And this could be because of cultural norms or it could be just a bad experience. It, it, it's fascinating to think about this right now in the context of a pandemic mm. where and we may have had this discussion before on the podcast, but where state capacity turns out to be both um, really vital and vastly different even amongst wealthy developed nations. Uh, Australia has been demonstrated to have extraordinary state capacity. And that's not um, that it's a particularly big state or a particularly small state or even a liberty-respecting one, but a state and a administrative um, function that can quickly do substantial tasks like spin up contact tracing, yeah. spin up hospitals, mm. and that sort of thing. And then other countries that are actually wealthier than we are, like the United States, mm. uh, clearly have such political or bureaucratic dysfunction that they are unable to do that sort of thing. Whether that's for um, uh, just just, uh, I mean, th- they have they have a higher taxes in many places that have been worse off than Australia and um, uh, and, and and more wealth, but they've been unable to do what we we have done. You know, the um, Scandinavian even, countries... Even the UK has, 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 has messed a lot of things up. They just seem incapable they've of been, doing so. They've been one of the worst. Yeah, yeah Scan- Scandinavian countries have been incredibly successful regardless of which approach they take. So Sweden's yeah. approach and the Norwegian approach have actually both been very, very successful at... Um, uh, at, at navigating these challenges. Some of the northern European countries have been incredibly successful. Germany's been incredibly successful. These are high state capacity ones and part of it is part of it is precisely that. It's trust. The trust that the citizens have and the belief that the citizens have that they will a, adopt changed behaviours and even follow new rules um, that the government might Put in, and so when uh, to bring it back to the conversation we had to start, mm. this is precisely what Daniel Andrews, what Scott Morrison, what Anastasia Palaszczuk. This is what our leaders have to be thinking about now. Do not squander the good faith yeah. mm. by which we approach this crisis. Maintain that state capacity. You can turn off the economy quickly. You've got to turn it back on really quickly too. Mm. Mm. Absolutely, and and uh, this is a book that I'll be uh, returning to. Uh, in the future and in the pages of the IPA review. I think it's a very um, important book for this this whole theme of state capacity, libertarianism. And uh, it's also got something in there for those who are concerned about China because the um, the thesis uh, that some uh, Chinophiles uh, put out there is, um, uh, well, yes, democracy is great, but gee, those Chinese get stuff done. 
we used to hear the same thing during the Cold War. You know, it's like, oh, well, the Russians, they get things done. They used to say th- the same thing about the Third Reich. Exactly. Oh, yeah, so all terrible. They, they, they get things done. And, but in fact... The, tra- uh, the but trains it, run on time. But in yeah. fact... That was but, but, Italy, but, but. Um, again, the conclusion of this book <laughs> is, no, they don't. Because in the absence of uh, pressure from the people on any sort of um, uh, 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 checks and balances which direct the state towards good ends, all the control over resource disposition falls to a despotic state and it starts to go into... It certainly, first of all, goes into things that are restrictive of liberty and then it just goes into things that are unproductive and we're starting to see this. It definitely happened in Russia, happened in China and indeed it did happen in the Third Reich. I mean... the, the, the Germans, of course, are famously efficient at, at doing things, you know, working towards an objective, but deciding between the yeah. objectives, it was a completely dysfunctional state, thank God. Yeah. That, that China line is important because you hear that so much from business class travellers oh, yes. who visit China and oh, see no. the airports, the airports, which are amazing. Yeah. Or and the, the and, damn trains, or, and, and yeah. all look like. But they stole the designs off the Japanese. So like these, these airports the that look like spaceships. But if you get out of the airports, if you get out of the hotels, if you just wander around, mm. you can see, well, it's not all airports. No, no, it isn't. Well, it segues nicely into the book I've been reading, which uh, concerns itself in part with the failure of new liberal democratic states which didn't have a strong tradition of democracy, which is a book called uh, To Hell and Back by Ian Kershaw. Uh, It's a book about the two world wars and more importantly the period in between uh, and the period just after the Second World War, but I'm not up to that part yet. But (laughs) the reason I wanted to read this book uh, is because, you know, it's such a volatile time um, and the point has been made to me... um, on a few occasions, this is this is you know li- liberal democracy and social democracy are really being squeezed here. Uh, we're reaching the interwar period where you're either a nationalist or a socialist. You weren't anything in between. So I wanted to read about this, you know, the basics, obviously. But uh, I have to say, when you look at what's happening now, the belligerence of China, major world actor, keen on you know reasserting itself in the global order. When you look at New York, you know, with Antifa sort of paramilitary group marching around as the state withdraws, when you look at the complex web of tensions and uh, ethnic nationalist, uh, political, ideological, uh, religious... I mean... We're, uh, you know, it's, 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 it doesn't bode well. Well, these are certainly the things to watch for. Yeah. I mean, um, um, so in the, in the Weimar Republic, uh, everyone remembers the brown shirts, yeah. you know, the, the, the Nazi thugs, um, but the communists had them as well. Well, It's just that the, the Nazis were even more ruthless. But think about it this way, Scott. Um, how long will it be with Antifa marching around burning down property before there are citizen safety groups that become right-wing militias springing up? But the, Not well, that I want that to happen, but no. if, if your business is being threatened and the police aren't doing anything, what well, do you do? You go well, and join a... Well, according to Andy, no, there's already... Uh, Antifa's already claimed a, um, an area of Seattle with a couple, yeah. a couple of block radius uh, that the police aren't allowed into and they're now saying we are responsible for public order. It's like that bloody Batman movie with um, uh, the guy, you know, that guy. The guy, yeah. Yeah, uh, him. Bane. Um, Ian, Bane. so your book uh, sounds excellent. Ian Kershaw is Professor of Modern History at the University of Sheffield, or at least was 
when I purchased this book, which is his biography of uh, Hitler, which I also recommend um, because it tells that story about the dysfunctional Nazi state. But mm. you don't want to get there. You don't want to have to find out about what, what that kind of dysfunction looks like. Well, no, and, and this is just a, a symptom of the fragmentation and the... Uh, yeah, we, we, we've lost... I mean, this is the... the end point of identity politics i guess we've divided ourselves up so much was it it was only a matter of time before we time before we started to take up arms and literally fight each other although in warring tribes in fairness when when the looters took over um in in the in as they did in so many american cities um what we actually saw was not um the boogaloo boys out there but there were often heavily armed black people defending mm. their stores against um Often very very pasty white looking guys who were trying to loot their bloody stores. Yeah. So so um, so to conclude, we do need police. Yeah, we, uh, these, these are. I don't know. I, I think why well, fight it? I think us libertarians should just stake out some territory uh, somewhere, you know, out of Melbourne and uh, and and claim that. No, no, first, <laughs> I want a piece of this action. As we discussed last week, first duty of the state is gold's to maintain, gold's. maintain order. Perhaps that's what Tom, I don't think we agreed on that. But go on. I, as, as I agreed with myself <laughs> last week, that is the first duty of the state. To define, uh, defend your territorial boundaries and maintain order, because uh, otherwise there's no damn point. Um, so, good book anyway. What was the name of it again? Uh, to Helen Back. We will Europe, 1914 to 1949. And uh, also recommend to you Babylon Berlin, the okay. series set in the age of the Weimar Republic, the most expensive television program ever produced in Germany by Netflix. Is that right? It's all oh. all, all subtitled, but it's uh, it's terrific. Another one to watch is that old miniseries that was on a while ago, Hitler: The Rise of Evil, uh, which. Basically, is Hitler from when he was born until he became Führer. Dramatized. Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, sorry, it's okay. a, a miniseries. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And uh, we went for, goes for about three hours. I rewatched it, you know, on this similar theme a few weeks ago. And uh, you know, you might not think that the young Hitler is a particularly tasteful choice for a, a movie. You know, the, the making of Hitler, the coming of age. But it was interesting to see, you know, according to the film, how he became radicalized, how he took over the National Socialist Party or whatever it was back then. How he, you know. Oh, whereas, um, of course, there's that, 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 that other show going around at the moment on Trotsky where um, they, <laughs> they make it's – a, it's a Russian-made program. They make Trotsky out to be, you know, uh, uh, an evil revolutionary. No way, really? Yeah, yeah, but that's because Lenin and Stalin are the good guys. That is so funny. In, <laughs> and, and where was this made? Oh, just recently. I was, in, to, I was talking to someone Russia, about it on the, on, the, on the weekend. I'll, I'll find out what that shows. I actually saw an episode of it. And um, yeah, they were equivocal about um, Trotsky, but they're, they're they're rehashing all the arguments from the 1920s when um, uh, when he got on the wrong side of Lenin and Stalin. Oh, well, good to see the pro-Stalin view is still. Um, Thank still well, we believe in balance, don't we? We believe in balance. Thanks to Pressure. Be published in the, the, New, York published Times, in the New York Times. <laughs> correct. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now we can thank Putin for that. Um, <laughs> expect to see more of that in the US election. Anyway, thank you very much. Uh, some excellent culture picks there. Two books, as I actually mentioned, versus only one yeah, Netflix read. program. <laughs> this has been uh, a great show. Thanks to you, Gideon Rosner. My pleasure. And as thanks always. to you, Chris Berg. Thanks, Scott. Thanks to Josh in the studio. You've been listening to Looking Forward, which don't forget is a product of the Institute of Public Affairs. So if you want to support our programming, not just this one, but all our other great podcasts, support our research, please go to ipa.org.au and uh, get around to see how you can join or donate. We're in the middle of our end of financial year appeal at the moment. And we really have appreciated the people who are suffering through this pandemic but still want to see a voice for freedom operating in Australia. We'll be back with more looking forward next week.